0: Rexy's musical podcast. For as far back as anyone can remember, major recording companies were always desperate to find the next big thing. When the Beatles became the biggest thing in the world, record companies swarmed in and grabbed every British rock band they could get their hands on. Same thing happened with Led Zeppelin. One day everyone thinks that Jimmy Page's new band was a dumb idea. The next thing you know, every guitar-riff-driven rock band gets signed to a record deal. The same could be said of Guns N' Roses or Motley Crue or Nirvana. Once record companies could figure out that a new scene was emerging, they signed everyone they could. The problem was that not every band wanted to sign with a major label. Some wanted to maintain their integrity, to avoid being bought and sold like a commodity. For some, the idea of selling out was less appealing than playing for nothing at all. And the idea of not selling out was not only important to the artist, it was also important to the hometown fan who took it as an insult whenever their favorite local band grew beyond that local audience. Today's guest is music writer Dan Ozzy. Dan has just released a brand new book called Sell Out, the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo and hardcore 1994 to 2007 it's a fascinating book that takes a look at 11 different bands that includes green day blink 182 my chemical romance jawbreaker and several others it's not only about the bands but it's also about the unspoken cost of success near success and failure this is my conversation with author dan Ozzie on backseat's musical podcast I've been ripping through the book as hard as I can. About seventy-five percent done. It's, uh, it's a,
1: it's a, it's a brick. I appreciate
0: you. <laughs> no, no, no. It, I mean, you're right. It, it is kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like furniture. But I found the book fascinating. Like I was, I was as, as thick as it is. I was not able to put it down. And I think the thing that I find you know so interesting about it, you know, and I've read, I've read a lot of books that you know talk about bands and the and the track of their career but i think what's what's so interesting about this particular treatment of this is that there's this constant feeling about the idea of fulfilling or not fulfilling expectations and and, and whether that expectation be uh, of the artists or the fans or the press or the record company it's like no matter how successfully you hope to be each level of that success comes with a pretty substantial cost.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, like, expectations are really hard to manage, especially when you're a young person, because I feel like going into it, the most level-headed people, their, their objective is to make the best album that they can. And even when they do that and they feel like they succeed, then you still have these people above you being like, yeah, but you didn't sell enough copies. You didn't get on the radio or whatever. And it's, <laughs> it is hard to manage those expectations when, like, you're managing so many people's expectations.
0: Well, you know, it's it's funny you say that. I mean, there there are countless of examples <laughs> of of bands that would you know a re- release a record that sells 20 million copies, and the next record sells 15 million copies. That would be a success by anyone else's you know, interpretation, but because it didn't sell as much, it's considered a failure. And oftentimes, these record companies would just give up on promoting that record or give up on promoting that band. And when you put it into that kind of perspective, it's almost like what kind of business model does that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it it often gets overlooked in hindsight, but that happened to green day where, you know, like dookie, I think in its first year, just in the United States sold 3 million copies. And then just a year later, they put out their follow-up insomniac and uh, within a few months, I think it had sold like a few hundred thousand records, but it was like struggling and, you know, by punk standards, I mean, like if, if Doogie hadn't happened and they, and they had sold a few hundred thousand records, they would have been like the biggest band and punk that ever did that. Right. Um, but yeah, because they had to do this follow-up, it created this like absurdly high bar that they had to match, you know,
0: it's, it's interesting to me that you, you picked Green Day. As uh as, as like a as like a, a dive in point uh, on this book because the truth is I mean you could have easily started things off with Nirvana or Guns and Roses or even gone back to the British invasion for all you know for all that matters because the reaction of record companies has always been relatively consistent in that regard it's like you know it, it's you know what have you done for me lately even though this outrageous success is great it's not enough. It's like you're always trying to replicate something that's impossible to duplicate.
1: For sure. I remember talking to a guy who was an A&R guy at uh, Capitol Records and he was like, uh, you know, by the time I got there, Capitol Records was struggling. Like, we needed a hit. And I was like, but didn't you just sell like a hundred million albums with MC <laughs> Hammer? And he was like, yeah, but that was the year before.
0: <laughs> so I was like, oh, wow, it moves that fast, huh? what is it about green day specifically that's that's that was so different at that moment because i mean you're you're right you know by punk standards you know dookie sold an extraordinarily mind-blowing number of copies no one had ever really done that in 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 punk music and then but but in your estimation what was it about them that separated them from everybody else
1: um you know they're really a special band. I think time has proven that, but they were just like, I don't know. There's a certain, it sounds very cheesy, but there's a certain element of like magic, you know, just right place, right time, right songs where, you know, like they came out of a scene that was very fertile um, with like Operation Ivy and Sam I Am and these like Berkeley bands. Um, But Green Day came along and they, just at the perfect time where there was groundwork laid and they wrote these songs that were fast uh, and aggressive, but at the same time, like radio friendly, you know, like they were melodic and Billy is very cute. And they just like, it, it's just one of those things where like all of the stars aligned at (laughs) once. And then really like, I, I put this in the book, but that, that Woodstock performance was just like, millions of people just got a glimpse into this young band that was just like, you know, ready. It was just like the world was ready for them. And then like after that, they just exploded. So it's really hard to quantify that kind of stuff, but it was just a matter. There's like an X factor to it, you know, that you can't even put your finger on, just like capturing the cultural zeitgeist. And especially too um, after, uh, after Nirvana, you know, like after Kurt had passed, um green day was like yeah we'll step in <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and what's what's fascinating in in the book is you know in spite of the success you and you have all these local fans that that follow this band from the very very beginning it, it's a it's a, a a rabid passionate fan base that that follows them early on but as soon as they start to have the success that every band secretly wants to have all of sure. a sudden you have this backlash as if well, Green Day has sold out and, and and not just the fans, even in the book you talk about their home club that they were playing at constantly had this policy of not allowing any band signed to a major label to play there as, as if they somehow compromised their integrity by becoming- like, becoming a success in a way that was probably a, a good deal out of their control yeah
1: and and I don't know what it's like to be in that position specifically, but it just feels like human nature that it's hurtful. You know, like if you have 100 people and 99 of them tell you that you're the greatest thing ever and then one person uh, has a snarky comment to make, of course, you're going to remember that one, you know, it's just, <laughs> and, and it's just sort of like human nature. I mean, Green Day in that one year they played at Madison square garden. They played at Woodstock. They won a Grammy. They sold 3 million copies just in the U S like it, it was the highest height you could have reached. And then they were just still dragged down by, you know, these haters <laughs> basically.
0: And that's always been kind of true about your know, punk fans in, in particular. You know, they're, you know, there's always this this backlash against those that that sell out. But at the same time, you you talk to guys from like, you know, Black Flag or or the the Circle Jerks about how these crowds or or you know the the crowds were changing over time. You know, it was you know first you got hardcore fans, and then all of a sudden there's this you know wave of violence and skinheads and you know guys you know you know beating the crap out of each other and you know acting like thugs at these shows. And then you have, you know, bands trying to do what they can to stop all this. And it's like, again, you know, you're, you're accusing a band of selling out, but yet you're the ones ruining it for everybody else. I mean, it's it's a kind of a weird double standard that occurred in punk in the, uh, in the eighties and, you know, heading into the nineties.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's sort of like the central, one of the central reasons, um, that I mentioned in the, at the drive-in chapter for their sort of demise, which is like, you know, they were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, like literally by the week, they were just becoming bigger. And, um, but they had people coming to their shows to like hurt people, you know, like, like they had seen slam dancing on MTV or whatever. And they came and they were being aggressive and, and the band was very uncomfortable with it. And it became this weird push and pull of like, how do we, how do we get on a bigger level but still kind of protect uh, our audience? And, right. and it just, the answer was it didn't work, you know?
0: I thought that that chapter was really fascinating because it, you know, you got, and part of it is because you also, in a previous chapter, mentioned, you know, Ian McKay of Fugazi. And, and and you know, there's a guy who's, who casts a pretty big shadow in, uh, you know, throughout the punk world. I mean, this is a guy who has, you know, unparalleled, Uh, you know, integrity as far as, you know, his music and, you know, his own, you know, discord records. And, you know, if he ever sees violence in the, in the, uh, in the crowd, he stops playing. And, 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 and it's interesting how in that chapter of, you know, at the drive-in, they were trying to emulate that same exact stance and how it wound up burning them in the end, because by trying to protect the, the, the fans that cared about them the most, they ostracized, they, they alienated themselves from from that crowd, and they never had the ability to recover. And again, expectations, this is a band that was considered to be about to be the biggest thing in the world, and it didn't happen.
1: Yeah, and I mean, like, you know, uh, they, they cite Ian as a big influence for their, how they commanded their stages when they went to places. But, you know, this is certainly no disrespect to Ian, uh, somebody I look up to greatly and Fugazi, but like... At the Drive-In was, was primed to play bigger places than Fugazi ever played. You know, Fugazi played these really big halls for people who mostly got it. But At the Drive-In was doing these festivals where they'd be next to Mudvayne or Limp Bizkit. And, you know, the crowd that was there, they were just – they didn't oh sometimes a lot of times didn't even know who At the Drive-In was. They were just coming for the weekend to dance around and, you know, whatever and have fun. And so, like, I think At the Drive-In – maybe found the cap you know they found the limit of like how far you can bring that mentality of like stage policing
0: yeah there's also a, a big a big part of the book that talks about the transition that a lot of these independent you know record companies have to make a, apart from you know ian MacKay, because i think he is the exception not the rule when it comes to this kind of thing he he's you know he's been very specific and very deliberate over his career but a, a lot of of bands start off with these independent labels and as soon as these records start to sell and all of a sudden these bands become more famous and the notoriety gets bigger and the venues become bigger what happens is is that these independent labels can no longer support the growth of this band it's almost as if the worst thing that can happen to an independent label is for someone to be successful it's like you know <laughs> Right. I mean, it 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 happened. I mean, I was thinking uh, a while back about uh, about Metallica. There's a, a good example of a band that that started on, you know, a real Mon Pa type of label. All of a sudden, they become the biggest thing in metal, and there's nothing that this little label can do for them. They had almost no choice but to go for a major label because a major label could give them what they what they needed and maybe and maybe maybe deserved. But it's a remarkably bizarre dynamic between the independent and the, and the majors.
1: What what I was just talking about too, like at the drive and finding that like growth cap, you know, I think some of the labels in this book found it too, where it's just like, Oh, we can, we can support a band up until this point. And then after that, we actually don't have the capacity to do it. And sometimes we're even like holding them back. And I think, I think the smart labels were the ones that like did not begrudge their, artists for going somewhere else. You know what I mean? Because it was like, we would be hindering you if we, if we tried to keep you at this point, you yeah.
0: know, a lot of the, uh, the major labels, especially in the, the eighties, because they were looking at college, you know, radio and they, and they were looking at, you know, the, the sales of some of these bands were signing bands like Husker Do and Sonic Youth and REM as like, like heritage type of signings not really expecting you know these guys to go out and sell a, a million copies of their records but it was like you know, it almost because we signed Husker Du that may entice us to find someone who is really impressed with that news and totally. they'll, and they'll I, make yeah. us money
1: I, I mentioned that in the in the intro that you could basically count on one hand the bands on the 80s that went to majors right Husker Du replacements Sonic Youth uh and I always wonder Uh, what the motivation was behind that. You know, like, was it a prestige signing? Was it, like, some guy at the label being, like, trying to get cred? Or maybe, like, if they thought that they signed Husker Du, that would help them sign somebody they really wanted. You know, like, I don't know what it was. (laughs) um, or But, like, or or maybe they just wanted the critical acclaim, you know? Like, the band would get a good review in the Village Voice, and then they could put a feather in their cap. Um, But, yeah, I don't think that, like, when they signed a band like Hooster Do, they were like, yes, this, this will sell a million copies or maybe they did. I don't know. But it just seems like throughout the eighties, those were so much rarer. And I wonder what the, the mentality behind that was.
0: So I come at this from a, like a, a radio angle. Cause you know, I, I, you know, I've been a radio for 30 plus years and, and you know, what I remember, uh, you know, back in the, in, in the eighties is that you, is that record reps would visit radio stations. They try to convince programmers to add records. And, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes those records were appropriate to play. And other times they, they were not that good or they just didn't fit the format or whatever it would be. But, you know, (laughs) you you do mention something about this, uh, about you you record executives, how there is a, a a lack of connectivity between them and the artists that they are trying to sell And, 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 and how I can, Try to visualize that. Is I, I remember very specifically um, when we were at the radio station. We're playing hair bands, you know. Primarily, that was that was the the big thing we were playing back in the 80s. And so you'd have record companies, uh, your record rep show up at the radio station, you know, wearing you know Daglo spandex with eight balls mm-hmm. of coke in their jacket. And the next minute, these very same guys, the same individuals, are showing up at the radio station wearing flannel shirts and knit caps and smoking <laughs> clove cigarettes. It's the same guys who didn't, I, I don't think they truly understand what they're doing. All they know is that, that they have to do it that way. And a signing. That's so funny. Well, it, and it's, it's, it was one of those things that was always, I thought, always comical. Because, you know, you know, here they are with these legacy signings. You know they don't know anything about these guys other than to say, isn't it cool that I have these guys? Because when that happens, you know, all of a sudden you get like a you know a a Blink one hundred eighty two or a jawbreaker who you know shows great potential and maybe you can do something with that. And if yeah. you're lucky enough to get, you know, Green Day signed or something like that or as big as that, then all of a sudden you're considered to be a genius. Which is yeah. I, I think has you know, always been true of record companies. I
1: mean, I'm trying to have like a little bit of empathy and I guess I will just say this in, in, in those guys' defense, you know, I realize this is like a weird (laughs) hill to die on, but like if I'm going to find empathy for those guys, I think it is a weird thing where, um, you know, when you're going to a big label, your A&R is the person who signs you and they, they, they really get what you're doing and they're looking out for you. But then like, once you get into this company, then you have, like, radio guys, promotion people, marketing people, whoever, who, like, work there. Um, they didn't pick the band to be signed, but now, you know, they've been dumped Blink-182 on their laps or whatever it is, and they all of a sudden have to market it, and you have to be a bit of a chameleon, I guess. You know, like, I'm just trying to, like, look for the shades of subtlety in the, in the if they're being disingenuous. You know, be like... It is a weird job for those guys to have. That you're just like, okay, here's your roster this (laughs) this year. Go sell these records, you know. the
0: the 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 time frame of the book is 1994 to 2007, and it's a it's a very interesting time frame in music because as you get as you get into the 2000s, the role of the record company changes dramatically, Um, and especially as you know when you're talking about downloads and streaming, you know, content record companies you know, in, 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 for better or for worse are, you know, do not have the same juice that they used to. You don't hear of someone signing a green day anymore because in the way of trying not to sell out, a lot of artists can do it all on their own and do, it actually takes a lot of that ethos of the, 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 uh, the DIY and applies it to today. How do you see the, the role of, of record companies today as, opposed to 94 to 2007?
1: Well, I think uh, a lot of young bands like look at record labels and be la- and with a more skeptical eye, like, well, what do I need you for? You know, I mean, I think that's been around for a while, but I do think that the role of A&R has changed where I think that, you know, decades ago, a band would get signed by an AR a- a- r person and it was sort of, uh, the standard that you know they were going to like work on this band for a couple of years to try to like make them big, and I think now it's more a little bit more geared towards like what can we buy that seems to already be popular? because there's stuff that you could just quantify now. You can see right. how many like TikTok followers somebody has, how many like Instagram followers they have, whatever it is. You can like crunch the numbers and be like we can make this much money off of this. Um but I don't know if uh, are they as invested in like growth over the long term? You know, like everything now moves so quickly that I don't know that record labels are as invested in like um investing in artists for the long term.
0: And wh- where do you think that leaves the artist? I mean because obviously, you know, uh, you know, someone who is successful, someone who can get, you know, the the appropriate number of, you know, you know, streams or, 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 hits can, you know, maybe monetize what they do, but it also, you know, requires a hell of a lot of work. And for some of these guys, there's like a, you're like in suspended animation, you know, you're, yeah. you're trying to, you know, meter out what you release. And, and, and even, even though your return, maybe the percentage of return may be greater by the dollar, the amount of time that it takes to do it all yourself is, is almost makes it sound like being a rock star kind of sucks.
1: Yeah, I have, this, I have this friend, Tim Barry. He used to sing for the Band of Vale. And one time he told me when people ask what he does, he doesn't say uh, he's a musician. He says he does retail music management because <laughs> you have to know how to like sell merch orders and fix the van and you set up your website and rub your, run your promos on your Instagram and all this stuff. So yeah, like it does take a hell of a lot more work um, the benefit is that you do reap a hundred percent of the reward. But I think like, it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier with there being like a growth potential cap, like you can do, you can own a lot of your own success now without the help of any record labels, right? If you are really good at marketing yourself on social media and, and, and everything, but there are still, um, apparatuses, apparatus um, that big record labels control that a person really can't crack into. The radio is one, um, international distribution is Mm -hmm. sometimes another one. Um, so there are still like powers that major labels have. Um, but I don't know, like, I don't like, I, I know that all of my artist friends do so much hands-on work right now. (laughs) Um, and yeah, I don't know if that'll ever change, or if that's just the way it is now.
0: The downside of that, you know, ultimately winds up being: can a can a band sustain itself financially to do all those things—to tour, to create merch, to sell it, to have a, the entire infrastructure e- exist? I mean, in 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 a way, every artist is now their own record company, and 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 to me, that may be the only way that saves music is for artists to literally take control of the whole damn thing because
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know how you know what other incentive would there be to even make music if it means you know you're 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 broken destitute with you know you know very few opportunities to to move ahead i mean d- d- does that make sense do you, you see what i'm i'm getting at i
1: do and and in a way like it's become you know like everything's become like more punk right like more diy right right <laughs> people do get to own like everything they do at the same time, like they are beholden to the mercy of like big companies like Spotify and, um, you know, YouTube and stuff that like holds, holds all those. like there are sort of like gatekeepers in that world. I I, like the tech world. Um, but, but yeah, like the potential for ownership is, is definitely much greater than it's ever been, I think.
0: And I, and I think you're right about, the you know the how important punk that that standard is because you know with without punk ever existing I you know, I'm not sure that people I mean I, I think eventually they probably would have come to around to the idea of of this DIY uh, perspective but it would have taken maybe a few more years before that happened and, and you know clearly that's the way it is I mean I've talked to you know a bunch of people who are making. You know, music. You know, by themselves, they're file sharing with other musicians. They're not, even, you know, with the pandemic and everything. Certainly, you know, it 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 knocks it knocks the progression forward over a notch because you have to now adjust everything for for time and and not being able to necessarily see the people that you're playing with. It, it it's it's a bizarre time for for music, but it is very interesting to me how things how are, are coming around full circle with that with the basic idea of punk that i don't need to be i don't need to be rick wakeman i don't I don't need to be eddie van halen i can i can do this on my own and and not sell out and 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 not compromise my own standards and expectations of my art
1: for sure i mean like that's kind of what i tried to hint at at the in the epilogue of the book of just sort of like we're kind of back where we started like you said full circle <laughs>
0: Again, I I really did enjoy the book. I'm 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 anxious to read the last twenty five percent of it. <laughs> we'll, I oh, will I will I will finish it. It's 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 a it's a fascinating look at, at how music has changed and 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 where it went during that period. Again, uh, sellout the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk emo and hardcore. Dan Ozzie, it's great to talk to you. Appreciate the time. Oh, thank you so much. Again, the name of the book is Sellout: The Major Label Feeding Frenzy That Swept Punk, Emo. And Hardcore by Dan Ozzie. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at backsatrock102.com, and we'll see you next time on Backsea's Musical Podcast.